I don't really know it's anymore. The most Hegelian way of beginning yeah. <laughs> platform. Welcome to the welcome to the Democratic National Convention. Uh, to understand America is to understand uh, phenomenology and ontology. <laughs> the Weltgeist uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, well, I mean, so I was looking for the phrase "America is an idea," and like, where does that come from? Mm-hmm. And uh, I could find it in only two places, which is one is obviously like Biden has been like Biden is the one that we can sort of accuse of of saying that over and over again. Uh, And the only other I just very quickly scrolled through the only other organization or institution I could find that repeatedly uses that phrase is uh, Lyft. The comp, the rideshare company. Yeah. (laughs) I was not prepared for that. I didn't even think. (laughs) So we're speaking, of course, of the uh, DNC uh, party platform that was leaked, uh, which for those who have not had the uh, privilege of reading it yet uh, does begin with the statement, America is an idea. One that has endured and evolved through war and depression, (laughs) prevailed over fascism and communism Uh and radiated hope to the distant corners of the earth. Oh, is that what we were doing? Radiating hope? Yeah. 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 Excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, We're going to be burning this village to the ground so that the fire may radiate hope. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's what we'll be doing here. Actually, we need to get rid. We need to kill Lumumba because uh, when the gunshot goes off, uh, his body will radiate hope. Yeah, exactly. Just echoes, <laughs> echoes of hope uh, for, forever. Well, um, with that rebranding of imperialism, let's go ahead and and dive right in. Welcome to the death panel. Today we've got a whole lot of wonderful stuff to talk about. Um, I'm I'm honestly just really floored by the Democratic Party platform and I'm excited to get into it. But like, I I think first before that, we should just like quickly plug Monday's Patreon episode. Mm -hmm. Really good episode. We went in depth sort of analyzing the way that COVID deaths are being normalized in real time and the sort of statement about how they should be like depoliticized and what that actually kind of means and how how kind of dangerous it is actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, also just like the sort of the way in which they're used in this ambiguous way of like deferring responsibility mm-hmm. uh, for uh, anything so it's and then Artie, you wrote a really good piece that's sort of related to that on your thank you on yeah. your stack which i thought was a, a really nice nice work on that one abduction sure. yeah <laughs> but yeah so like that kind of like is all very central in my head as we dive into this so if you'd like to go ahead and get access to the bonus episodes patreon.com slash death panel pod yep so yeah the democratic party platform leaked this morning yeah i mean this is, I guess, the worth. It's worth saying this is a draft uh, document. So, yeah. uh, ostensibly, the committees uh, that put this and other documents together are going to be meeting. I think next week to, you know, entertain uh, amendments to this. So right. this is not like a final version. But I mean, let, let's be it honest. Signals where where it signals pretty much. I mean, you're yeah. not going to deviate. I would think too much from the language. Totally. Uh, here, or at the very least, this gives you this does give you a sense of where the 
there's a reason maybe why this leaked and it's not necessarily just yeah. the reason of like uh, disgruntled delegates. Uh, I, I don't actually think that disgruntled delegates leaked it because assume that this is amended in, in, you know, ways that are preferable not to party leadership. It would be helpful for the actual backers of the party to know where they really stand. Right. And I think that's probably a better inclination of why this has gotten out there. Also, frankly, it's gotten a lot of, I mean, I feel like most of the things that I've seen uh, from it, even from, you know, people who, people who do, I think, frankly, advocate for much better, more meaningful policies than are mm-hmm. contained in, than, than what are contained in this document have, have been sort of uh, posting like little sections of this claiming it as like some sort of victory. And that way it's a lot like the Biden Sanders unity task force Mm -hmm, uh, document mm -hmm. itself, which um, I mean, not, not in its uh, policy prescriptions necessarily, although to to some degree there's a lot of overlap, but like uh, in, in terms of the response to it, which is to kind of immediately claim some sort of victory, basically saying like, well now this in the, since we have this draft document, we know that like Biden is committing to like, say, oh, like a lot of the headlines are about like, oh, they have a much more ambitious climate platform, uh, et cetera. But again, you know, the party platforms themselves are these like weird documents that are sort of recommendations for like what the broad outlines of an administration right. might look like. And it's not it's like, like a mission statement, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And as we talked about when we covered the unity task force, it's like, these are recommendations. This is sort of a starting point walking into like an idea of what what the Biden administration, if they win, could be um, looking to spearhead. But it's not like saying like, OK, um, this is a commitment from Joe Biden to have Medicare for all on his desk in the first hundred days. Right. Like, yeah, that's I mean, a very and, different. And explicitly, it's not saying that's not too. that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But it's also like. Platforms in the American context are not the same thing as party manifestos in Europe, uh, in European democracies or parliamentary democracies where the manifesto is pretty much um, I mean, it's not like it's not binding, but it's a much clearer statement of where most of the candidates are going to stand because of the structure of the party. Whereas here is if it doesn't work for you in, in your local context or it doesn't work for you as a candidate. Uh, you don't, you're by no means, uh, there's nothing binding you to this, right? Right. It does. It is the case that, you know, parties at least try to work on, um, I think there's some research to suggest that like the vast majority of things that are included in platforms, if a party has the ability to do it, they will, it's like, it's a signal of what they will indeed try to work on though. The prioritization is the key, right? There are a Mm -hmm. lot of things in a platform. There are only so many days on a legislative calendar. And it's not as if the organization of the document, like page one versus page 50, gives you a clear indication of how the party rank orders these things. One of my favorite things is like for years, the Democratic Party has pledged to repeal like provision 14B of Taft-Hartley or, you know, doing things like... uh, you know, enacting a card piece of card check legislation yeah. uh, to make it easier to unionize. Um, you know, does that really make it to the agenda? No. Right. Uh, I mean, so, to that extent, to, yeah. to, I mean, to that extent, I would say that like by, by the logic that you're putting forward, Phil, actually, if you wanted to, for instance, like, since we do have a lot of European listeners, like to understand the corollary here to the, to like a party manifesto, it's, it would ba- make more sense actually to look at the, like, incredibly limp even by comparison to this document um heroes act that we talked about mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um because that's like an actual you know no, no no i mean that's i mean uh that's certainly what the party is able to get consensus enough consensus on to like get a vote 
right? right. Uh, get a rule on the legislation. Um, it doesn't necessarily foreclose any of the possibilities that are contained here, but it's it's sort of under the current uh, arrangement, um, not having a Democratic president that's like pushing an agenda. Um, that's sort of where party leadership seems most uh, interested in the present moment. It's a piece of crisis legislation. So I guess that does sort of reduce the comparability a little bit. But I mean, so I guess I, I fall a little bit between the the camp, which says, like, let's just dis- like, let's not even talk about party platforms anyway. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think that there's, I don't think that like you should just dismiss them, but at the same time, be realistic about what they aren't, which is they are not like a binding commitment to things and they don't tell you, uh, how much the party weights different sort of priorities. Yeah. I think that that context that you bring up, Phil is super important that like the, you know, it, it's like that it is a crisis document that it is how to put it, that this is arising from and like very contextually situated, like the whole first half of the document is basically and and throughout the document, actually, if you search pandemic, it's like 75, it's on like 70, there are like 75 mentions in like the 80 pages. So it's like riddled through this document. But at the same time, it just highlights, I think, the severely limited scope with which they think about Mm -hmm. it. I think one really good example is just that in general, like, so many of the things that they put forward here, they sort of, uh, they, you know, they sort of do that thing of acknowledging the problem, but then sort of saying that it's, uh, as opposed to like the sort of normal thing, uh, I think for like a, for neoliberal language, which is to sort of acknowledge the problem and then propose a sort of like really, uh, minor sort of like tweak fix, like one weird (laughs) trick, um, sort of, sort of situation. They, they rely now, uh, because it is like a moment of crisis on, a lot of this, like, well, this is something we obviously have to do during the pandemic. Like, for example, one sent here's like one thing that's a sentence in a public health crisis, comma, we all have to rely on each other. Like, right. So it's like uh establishing a a predetermined state of exception and like temporary nature to some of these like proposals from the get go. And here's another one, uh, quote, it has, always been a crisis that tens of millions of Americans have no or inadequate health insurance, but in a pandemic, it's <laughs> catastrophic for public health. It is always catastrophic for public health, right? Uh-huh. So it's like, it's, but it, yeah, I mean, and so to that extent, I think that there's just a but lot now, of, um, with unprecedented eyes on the lack of health care, it is catastrophic. Right. Uh, quote, we will I mean, keep these emergency measures in place until the pandemic ends and unemployment falls significantly. Uh, yeah. Anyway. The, uh-huh. I, but I think the thing is, like, if you want to have a crisis document, right, because, hey, let's face it, this is a crisis. It's the largest crisis since the Great Depression. If you want to have a crisis document, I don't think you begin with the paragraph that is uh, America is an idea. Right. <laughs> just to give you an example of what a perhaps better uh, crisis platform would be. Let's take a look at the 1932 Democratic Party platform. Hmm. Quote, this is the first paragraph, quote, in this time of unprecedented economic and social distress, the Democratic Party declares its conviction that the chief causes of this condition were the disastrous policies pursued by our government since the World War of economic isolation, fostering the merger of competitive businesses into monopolies and encouraging the indefensible expansion and contraction of credit for private profit at the expense of the public. (laughs) Wow. America well, is an idea, but also we fucked up. Right. Well, America is an idea and we are going to offer none. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. It's just so weird to hear someone kind of take responsibility. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, to that extent, <laughs> I feel like I would, uh, what's the, I almost prefer it to be, you know, it would be, I guess it would be one thing if it was like America is an idea and then it led into just like that full speech, uh, like the monologue from network. Like I don't have to tell <laughs> yes. you things are bad. Nobody or everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work and scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are warning. Okay. Actually, that is basically the same language. Yeah. are running wild in the street. <laughs> that's basically okay this is actually basically what they lot. did is they wrote the network monologue okay never mind yeah it yeah. sounds very joe biden but but i mean the thing is like you know the, the funny thing is you know that this is this is a crisis and obviously a lot of like things are in peril but then you read into the document and yeah it's um if you do the side-by-side comparison with what the democrats proposed in 2016 it's like hmm what has really <laughs> what has changed? Yeah. Right. I mean, to be honest, like obviously one of the things that I immediately gravitated towards was the achieving universal affordable quality healthcare section. Yeah, let's talk about the healthcare stuff that they put in here because I think that's actually a really perfect example of how limited the scope of this document truly is. Yeah, there's a hilarious sentence in the first paragraph of the achieving universal affordable quality healthcare section um, that just like made me cringe and laugh that I wanted to read to you guys just to set the mood before we start. Because of the Obama-Biden administration and the Affordable Care Act, more than 100 million Americans with pre-existing conditions from heart disease to asthma are secure in the knowledge that insurance companies can no longer discriminate against them. Oh, boy. And boy, can I tell you how nice it feels to be secure in the knowledge that I can't be discriminated against in the context of my pre-existing condition. Wow. Problem solved. I find this framing incredibly insulting, frankly, um, just from a personal standpoint, but especially considering the fact that this sort of promise that keeps getting rolled out over and over again, which um, is still being used as sort of the, I'd say the like main structural tent pole of like any conversation around healthcare coming from Democrats right now is this sort of like, okay, we've got the pre-existing condition they're addressed, they're solved, that's handled, we protect them. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, if if one of the goals of a platform, not certainly the only one, but one of it is like to sort of provide a, a codex of lines for people to use on the stump and like mm-hmm. public promises to an audience that is not made up primarily, thank God, of policy specialists. <laughs> um, I don't see how in a pandemic where... Uh, millions and millions of people are losing their insurance. You can't come out with a stronger pledge to, you know, than this sort of very vague commitment. Yeah. To like universal healthcare at some point, maybe. Right. Or, I mean, I feel like they don't even, I mean, they don't even project a universal healthcare at some point. They say that like, they basically say we've been fighting for universal health care. This is what universal health care means to us. Uh, Universal (laughs) health care means a number of things like, uh, you know, show favorites that we've made fun of at endless length, like continuing to uh, making sure that the federal government like picks up 100 percent of uh, like the Cobra tab or whatever uh, yeah. for <laughs> Uh, but like only just during the pandemic because like and, and cited as like specifically as, uh, you know, couched within unemployment, um, making sure that like, they, you know, people have been I mean, one of the most frustrating things to me about this, because I feel, I feel like almost we don't even have to go out into like into the weeds of like the minutia of 
what they propose on, for instance, like drug pricing and stuff like that, you you can just see really plainly in terms of like, I mean, think of what so much of the the political conversation in the 2016 election cycle was about and a lot like on healthcare and so much of it was ultimately like, you know, single payer, uh, like Sanders Jayapal version on one side and then sort of like a myriad of like weird uh, public option mangled platforms and and stuff like that right um and this sort of presents one of those but you know people are like hailing this as some sort of like victory in terms of seeing uh more details on what the biden public option would look like but then again actually as we mentioned when we talked about Mm -hmm. this in the sanders when we talked about the sanders biden uh unity task force document on i think the patron episode the from the previous week, um, you know, what, like one of the things that it specifies is that it would have like oh some automatic enrollment for poor people somehow. Like no mention of how they're going to implement that um, for <laughs> uh, into like a quote low fee uh, platinum plan um, with no deductible, basically, or low or no deductible, um, which then specifically they state will like expire at some point after the pandemic is over also no mention of what the like cost sharing would be like it's one thing to say low fee right um it's another thing to explain like i had a low fee platinum plan i had an infusion that left me with an 1800 dollars patient responsibility it's great to eliminate the seven thousand deductible that i had to pay before then but not eliminating the infusion which i get every four weeks doesn't do much to help me access my affordable care frankly well, it's like you can't solve this with the system that we currently no. have and you can't solve you can't solve something just for the pandemic <laughs> right you know? i mean but i guess my perspective on this is just that look it's the democratic party platform i wasn't right. coming to this expecting you know a rose garden by any means. Uh, but I, I, some of the things, just even from a thinking about it strategically from like a Democratic Party politico strategist type perspective, it doesn't make sense. So the Medicaid thing, um, basically saying that, okay, there are states that haven't expanded Medicaid. Um, and so uh, for the people who are in the gap in those states, we're going to automatically enroll them, huh? not in Medicaid, <laughs> mind you. We are not going. We are not going to give them any sort of public program that's like a, a public insurance program. We're going to enroll them in the public option, right? Without premiums, and uh, you know, I'm just not sure that that's like really a. I don't see how that's like an inducement. If you really want states to expand Medicaid, that's not an inducement for them to do it. And I also think it's sort of by framing this as like a public option. I mean, they're not talking about Medicare by any means. It's not as if they're enrolling uninsured people in Medicaid in Medicare. I mean, it just doesn't make a lot of sense from a like basic strategy standpoint. Yeah. Well, no, especially because of the way that Medicaid's funded, how, you know, unevenly it's implemented from implemented from state to state. I don't know. There's something about this document which really feels like I guess the purpose of these kinds of things, like you were saying, I think, Phil, earlier is to teach down ballot candidates how to still raise money from people while appearing to critique them publicly. Right. Like, cause a lot of these, <laughs> I mean, a lot of these like sort of, uh, rhetorical packages, which are contained within this document, you know, um, will say something like, 
you know, we for too long prescription drug companies have gamed the system to justify their price increases by any means available. Democrats will crack down on anti-competitive efforts to manipulate the patent system and collude on prices. So you're teaching people how to identify the problem that mass movements have identified and are demanding an answer for. And divert, while, divert the energy. Right. Yeah. While re- replying in the second sentence and giving parameters that signal to large donors, large corporate donors, that nothing will fundamentally change. And it's frankly impressive gymnastics. Yeah. Um not in a good way. <laughs> yeah, it's it's impressive. It's impressive. It's impressive to me because you know this is a this is an election where, as we'll talk about, I guess a little bit later, mm-hmm. you know, voter turnout is going to be harder than you think in a lot of places, and there's going to be a lot of challenges to ballots, and therefore, I don't see how you real. I mean, like if this is the sort of messaging, the sort of like um. The messaging Bible. I'm not sure how this this sort of language like really works. It doesn't it doesn't create a clear, uh, you know, choice. In I mean, it does. There's a clear choice, like not Trump. That's the clear choice. Right. Uh, not the chaos. And and I'm not discounting that as something that matters. It, you know, in social psychological sense, it probably does. But um, it, it, just in terms of policy, it's like it would be nice if we were not voting on this sort of. Uh, sort of hodgepodge of things yeah yeah should we talk about their uh long-term care speaking of hodgepodge sure. oh yeah please so uh there's a section on long-term care within the healthcare section um called expanding long-term care services and supports where they uh definitely identify the problem and then proceed to sort of I would say just like completely uh, push it down the line saying that they're going to do things like work to eliminate waiting lists and discrimination. Work to being yeah. the key words there. Work yeah. to is doing a lot in that sentence. Like, Making investments in building the capacity of the Medicaid system to provide home and community based services. This is like when an artist statement has like, I'm going to interrogate power structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Are you ready for how they're going to help pay for long term care? Go for um, it. Hit me. A tax credit. A tax credit uh, for informal and family caregivers. <laughs> um, that doesn't actually help people pay for long-term care. That helps enable people who can afford to stay home from work to care for family members, care yeah. for them. But um, And they'll pursue policies to improve staffing and quality and strengthen accreditations in nursing homes. So it's like a, a very good way to sort of identify what problems they're picking up on from the meta narrative as being something that they have to verbally address at least like and i think from that standpoint it's great to see these things addressed and at least we have some sort of language to start watching for i mean it's funny because they um you know they they do at the very least do do things like say, oh, you know, we want to we, we want to act to uphold Olmstead and make sure that people, you know, are not institutionalized in places like um, nursing homes or other sort of mm-hmm. like medicalized uh, in, like institutions, like, you know, whether against their will or uh, whether against their will directly, like their, their uh, you know, a- their actual decisions or, or whatever, or against their will because of just like simple mm-hmm. the, the actual like economics of, of uh, having like trying to survive in the United States. But um, I think I think that's like the, the that's a good point, B, because the you know, they can identify it, but then they still do. It actually reminds me much like it, it, it kind of it's like a very similar 
rhetorical turn to what happened with um, like jails and prisons, especially like like if you think about the way that the Democratic Party and people like Bill de Blasio or whatever uh, in New York for example, uh, and and basically like the New York Democratic apparatus have responded to, uh, you know, calls to and like abolish jails and, and prisons. Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, are like their their result was like, OK, let's close Rikers and b- build like four luxury prisons. High rise, right? humane yeah, exactly. jails. It's like this. But and this to me, this reads like the same thing, but for long-term care frankly mm-hmm. like we're gonna no we're not gonna like we're not gonna work towards a fundamentally we're, we're not gonna work towards what they have uh, started campaigning on uh which is almost frankly like bizarrely a rhetorical force that i that sounds similar to stuff that we were saying uh really early in the in the primary but towards like a what is it like a caring economy uh-huh. like we were talking about a care society a long time ago um when we were talking about like the like the bernie sanders disability rights platform and stuff like that like mm-hmm. how that would fundamentally reorient how we look at like the political economy of care uh in the united states and they like yeah i don't know and they're like doing that rhetorical flourish but basically saying like no we're gonna these these like fundamentally decrepit institutions that are that like do harm and have during the pandemic fucking killed people. Right. Um, we're just going to basically like regulate them a little tighter and like make sure that they have like bigger TVs or something. Oh, yeah. And of course, nothing in this very small long term care section actually addresses the fact that a lot of the non informal workers who will not be eligible for the earned income tax credit for their informal home care, like the people who do this for agencies or for inpatient centers or or nursing homes, etc. Nothing to address the fact that most of those people make like substandard wages. Right. Right. And that addressing like the the uh, absolutely terrible standard of like working conditions for people in this industry is one of the most important things um, that we need to also address like in tandem with making sure that like people can receive the care and support that they need in the venue that is most appropriate for them yeah, that they want. Right. I mean, this is something we've been talking about a lot in our, in our discord reading group. Cause we've been reading decarcerating disability oh, yeah, totally. together. And one of the things the author points out is that, you know, there is this framework for an abolitionist practice in the deinstitutionalization movement that started in the 60s and the closure of a lot of the psychiatric facilities. Now, there are also a lot of lessons that can be learned from the mistakes that happened. Um, And that's something like as we get through the book, we'll get into more. But like, it's interesting to think about how like deinstitutionalization became a public outcry and very much sort of the nursing home situation um, could in the very same way in the context of COVID start to become like a national issue the same way, like with Bobby Kennedy going to the hospital in Staten Island and showing all the kids like (laughs) in filth, like really just all of a sudden created a moment, right. Where, where, where the federal government and and national politicians had to address it. Right. And then there was like an immediate, the smoking man from the X-Files had to kill him. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah. No, but it, so it's it's interesting to think about that that context of deinstitutionalization and to think about that really carefully when we watch what happens to the conversation around long-term care, around nursing homes and around any sort of facility where people are housed in tight totally. quarters yeah. like jails, prisons, 
and like frankly psychiatric facilities which do still exist right and if um if you're listening and this is like interesting to you the reading group that we mentioned is in our discord server um it's meeting on sundays and they're like literally just starting they 5 p.m eastern yeah they've done two uh meetings so far it's like it's this is uh like b's b's a part of it but it's like listener organized um and like friend of the show organized um and they're like literally they're just starting chapter one of mm-hmm. decarcerating disability after having had a, um, a meeting or two about like the the preamble to talk about the beginning of this. So, um, yeah, join our discord. Um, if yeah, you, we'll if you uh, check that out. We'll put a link to the text um, to join us. It's at 5 p.m. Eastern on Sundays. And you can come even if you haven't read because Charlie and Sal, who hosted, do a great job putting together like a summary of key stuff. So you're welcome to join in even if you're not caught up. But we're doing chapter one. So there's also a great audio track of Daniel reading it that yeah. I made. So. Yeah, that's really good. Yes. Isn't it nice to do native advertising instead of reading ads for Squarespace? Uh, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, our, our reading group is pretty awesome and it's getting bigger and bigger. So we're excited to like actually do chapter one. But no, I mean, it's like that that conversation, though, uh, and and the way that sort of deinstitutionalization was addressed after public outcry, I think we're going to see a very similar fight play out around the conversation Mm -hmm. of nursing homes. Even just today, we had Rand Paul going on the morning, like going around on a, on I think like a talk radio. Yeah. Something Fox podcast. Thank you. Um, saying that we need to, uh, have Andrew Cuomo impeached for his mishandling of the coronavirus crisis in nursing homes in particular, Mm -hmm. which like hard agree. However, for very different reasons, as he goes on proposal, I can get behind. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I mean, I think the, but like, so what, so the question is like, what do we make of why the treatment of some of these things is so perfunctory? Right. And like the, the baseline explanation is like, well, this is a platform and, you know, platform is incredibly telegraphic, uh, in its language. But, you know, I think it's telegraphic to a point. I mean, if you read some of these sections, they have incredibly specific things to say that might indicate, you know, they clearly indicate something as opposed to sections that uh, treat the issue incredibly vaguely. I mean, and I think to me, what you're trying to do is, is signal to organized groups that have, have some sort of stake or have some ability to turn out various parts of the electorate or are organizationally important to the party that you are working on their issues. And when I see a a paragraph like this on long-term care, I'm like, what about the the disability uh, groups that yeah. you know could potentially be a very powerful force um, in mobilizing people? Is like this they, they're completely they're not even attempting to signal. Right. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's a mention of Olmstead, but I mean, look, but a mention you know, only. Yeah, really. yeah. yeah. You know, that, that I think nobody in the right you know who's who who is organized on this issue. Um, in, in a you know serious way is going to treat that Olmstead mention as anything more than window dressing. Right. Right. And, and I mean, I think the way that they mention Olmstead in particular is really important because they said that essentially they are just sort of strongly committed to uh, protecting and enforcing the ADA and fulfilling the promise of Olmstead. Right. And um, I I think like the fact that they felt nothing, they felt no need to actually do anything other than address the fact that this is a problem mm-hmm. is indicative of like 
their blind spot to how important this conversation around community-based care is going to be going right. forward. Well, because ful- fulfilling the promise of Olmstead also well-being, you know, that's that's you know pretty a uh, vague. Um, way to way to frame what you like what exactly you want to do but like beyond that uh fulfilling the promise of Olmstead is also like as you guys have kind of said window dressing compared to i think the meaningful ambitions of a lot of dis- like disability rights advocates who yeah. and and activists who would want uh who would want to imagine you know a world not only where Olmstead which was was like what 20 years ago 1999 20 years ago okay so yeah Olmstead, which was uh which was a decision like 20 years ago more than 20 years ago now um is like not only up- upheld but like moved far beyond mm-hmm. i mean it's not it's not if you want if i mean if you want to even pretend to be a uh quote unquote progressive party like no matter like no matter what your identification of progressive is I'd I'd say that like simply affirming something from 20 years ago is not (laughs) exactly progressive like I mean especially considering like that Olmstead is so specific and um, that it is incredibly limited in that it it restricts like the rights of people with disabilities to not be segregated um, based on their like mental illness or disability only when it's unjustified. Yeah. So like Olmstead also upholds the entire prison industrial co- like complex by and simply right and yeah. and by going back to like frankly a in the midst of the Biden crime bill era ruling that that supports releasing some institutionalized people but it also, frankly, supports keeping others in institutions like just simply upholding that from 20 years ago right. is not adequate. Well, which is why I think I mean, like that. And that's kind of the that's like the kind of funny problem that gets it's missed a lot when you do when you allow for this to like be read as a, a victory for like, you know, um, for, for like individual things within it. I'm sure like, yes, it's yes. It, a lot of these things are uh, the, uh, what they're putting forward if this is what they actually fought for is better than the current Biden platform. Yes. But then when you, but it is important to still like interrogate even some of the actual, like fun, like the fundamental, I was going to say phrasing, which for example, is like what we're doing with Olmstead, but then also just like, um, ideologically where so, like some of these things I read and I'm like, where the fuck does this come from ideologically? And it scares me mm-hmm. like one good example, which I think actually maybe, uh, is possibly a good, a good, uh, like transition point for us into, into like talking about some of the other stuff that we want to talk about with like census and things like that or mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. or the ongoing crackdowns um, or threat of federal crackdowns but the um, there's a quote in here that just like I, I read it and I was like I don't think I've ever seen anyone phrase this issue in this particular way which is um, read this quote uh, quote no one should have to choose between protecting their health and earning a living paid sick leave is a necessity even under normal circumstances but in a pandemic it is a matter of national security Uh-oh. which is like mm. to me i mean it's, it, it, it like it drives me insane because i'm just like okay so i i understand the like securitization and like the 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 how to put it? I understand the the argument that we've seen the Democratic Party do for like decades now of like basically you know embracing national security apparatus, especially after the fucking Trump thing with mm-hmm. all the veneration of all these FBI figures and stuff like that. But then like 
So is it is it just that like the only way we can even convince these people to like suggest nice things, is, like suggest and not even maybe do nice things is to like convince them that it's somehow a national a matter of national security? Like, do we have to fucking convince Nancy Pelosi like to to pass Medicare for all? Do we have to convince Nancy Pelosi that Blue Cross Blue Shield is run by like Saddam Hussein or something? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Saddam Hussein line too. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think one of the things that's also really, um, really worrying about this is just that like, you know, there in particular, there are a lot of like sort of lines in the sand being drawn in that respect that indicate to me that what this could be signaling is that the federal government is willing to step in and help put the blame on workers for infecting their coworkers, mm. shielding liability for employers, frankly. Yeah. Um, cause it kind of frames like sick leave as something that, um, is like extra state in responsibility now. Mm-hmm. So the government will like do their part to enforce it. But yeah, like, that's with, a really good point. Totally. No, but and, and all at the, at the end of the day, like this seems to be more to be in line with, um, addressing, uh, the concerns of, of employers who don't necessarily want to provide sick leave or have been doing it restrictively like Whole Foods and Amazon, frankly, yeah. you know, um, to, to, to indicate them that they will be shielded from accountability because the government is going to help frame this as something that was the responsibility of the worker. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to read too much into some of the, I mean, some of the language in this platform seems like a <clears throat> 2 a.m. coding, uh, <laughs> you know, s- situation, but, um, but like, you know, of course, there is a history of uh, I would just call it Cold War liberalism, yeah. where the sort of expansion of the domestic supportive state of education and, and other sort of, uh, I guess, social rights, you would say, was advanced on the back of um, international uh, geopolitics, uh, right. you know, defending the United States, the space race, et cetera. It's important that students learn French because they might have to be spies. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I think I think the broader point here, regardless of what one makes of that language, is that you will learn much more about the Democratic Party's preferences by how they negotiate with McConnell on the question of the liability shield and what yeah. they are willing to give up in exchange for that. Because the liability shield that has been proposed, the draft language would make it. I mean, it is really hard to imagine how you could propose stronger language protecting businesses. Yeah. The basically it says there's there's no amount of proof that would be uh, sufficient to demonstrate that uh, there was causality Mm -hmm. on the part of the employer. Is this the same as that uh, that model bill that Alec put out or is it is that like just is that like the state version? I don't know. But I mean, it's like from what I've read of the the, some of the uh, descriptions of the draft language, the McConnell uh, bill is that it's it's sort of it's an unprecedented level of protection Mm. uh, from liability. And so what exactly are Democrats? What is the thing that they are willing to exchange for that? What do they get in exchange for it? They get what a $100 a month extension of the pandemic emergency unemployment assistance. Like, well, we'll see. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) Well, I mean, and yeah, I I think, I mean, that's a, it's, I mean, that's a really important point, especially when, when, as we've sort of talked about before, when, when these two parties do have sort of like slightly different variations of the, like some of the same goals here. Right. That I feel Mm -hmm. like they can interact in 
like the, the those sort of the moments of like either uh overlap or yeah the like shared ideological compass i guess mm-hmm. um can become really uh, troublesome, especially when, so let's say, you know, the, let's say they do pass like these mass liability protections for companies for yeah. uh, coronavirus uh, deaths. And I'm, I'm sure which will like extend into, you know, if we can imagine emergency measures of any kind extending beyond the pandemic, I would say that liability protections for businesses are probably pretty high on the ticket. But the, um, I mean, when, when especially, you know, I feel like so much of the, the framing, even this, and, you know, again, maybe we should move on, but like, I feel like so much of the framing in this, in, in, this uh, draft of the DNC DNC platform also sort of acknowledges that passing of the buck of like post of like Cold War liberalism from like yeah like whatever the mandate or the the possibilities are for like the state to act versus mm-hmm. sort of like relying on and empowering uh, private companies like when when they talk about this you know they're like healthcare all this healthcare stuff is about insurance companies all this healthcare stuff. Uh, with the exception of like what they try to specifically say about Medicare, which again is only specific to the pandemic. But then, you know, they talk about massively rolling out like uh, testing and and tracing. And what is that ultimately going to look like other than supports for companies like um, Quest Diagnostics or whatever, who are already signaling in the press that they like can't even like there, there was a there was a uh, uh, article the other day where like the I think it's the CEO or something of Quest was saying they can't like just like just FYI everyone if this keeps getting really like at, if this if if these trends continue let's say mm-hmm. um, like this is going this is we're going to get to a situation where like the private companies that the government is currently relying on wholesale to and that, that seems like the DNC would like you know push forward and relying on wholesale to um, conduct all these like testing uh, to, to do all these tests, like they will not possibly even be able to like keep up with the, like w- with the, like uh, I was going to say demand, but that makes it sound like I don't want to use the same like the business terms, but yeah, the, like the, the pacing the sheer, of the testing required in order to be safe. Yeah. Of tests required yeah. to do, to do the level of testing that will be needed for basically every fucking plan under the sun, every mm-hmm. reopening plan or, or, uh, what is it called? Recovery initiative under the sun. McKinsey's every the next single normal. new normal. Like, yeah, every new normal, every <laughs> next normal. Like all of those plans. Like you're not gonna, you can't even keep up with the the scale of the testing but, uh, under the under the auspices of like of these private companies, which are going to be relied on. I mean, I think one question when you're reading this, I think we've 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 taken a bunch of different like swipes at it, but I think another way of thinking about it is like, what does this tell us about the the fulcrum of of american politics and sort of uh where both of the parties are and there's this like sort of conventional analysis that's out there that's you know well the republican party has over time come to represent such a narrow slice of the electorate that competitive elections uh are a in fact a threat uh, to that party and unless they're using sort of ethno-cultural fractionalization and sort of quasi-authoritarianism or authoritarianism um (laughs) they are (laughs) you know that uh, elections pose a threat and, and that they are willing to uh, do things that negate uh, the choices of a democratic majority. Right. The left out of that. And then that analysis goes on to say that, well, I mean, more more or less the democratic party is a kind of party you would expect to see in a democracy. Um, But I would say that negates one important thing, which is I think, yes, Democrats do generally. And even if you look in this document, seem to have an interest in expanding the electorate, but I would say only to a point. Yeah. Right. right. If it's too large, uh, I mean, there's certainly slices of the electorate that they want to bring in on specific terms. Mm-hmm. 
But they don't, for example, go so far as to say everybody in prison should be allowed to vote. Um, the thing is, expanding the electorate too much is also a threat to Democrats. And it's a threat because some of the uh, policies they might have to adopt are very different than the ones that they would adopt here if they wanted to, um, you know, win, uh, win elections. And so the, the thing that I think is, is disturbing to me is that uh, regardless of, I think, which party wins, there's going to be no way for people to register their preferences or their discontent with yeah. what they are being offered other than civil unrest. Right. That will be the only enduring way that the the demos uh, is able to like register what's going on and what government is doing wrong. And, you know, unless you try to really take a stab at dealing with that in a serious way, you are setting things up for repression. Right. Uh, and I, I think that's the really you, that's my sort of sidelong look at this. But I, I, I do find it kind of disturbing that more is not being offered. No, yeah. exactly. I mean, I think. To be honest, this might be a good time for us to sort of shift the conversation and break it out a bit into like the discussion of like mail-in voting, voter suppression during COVID and the whole situation going on with the the census. census. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because, yeah, because if America is an idea, then uh, let's (laughs) let's look at how that idea is doing. Huh? (laughs) Maybe. I actually I just registered um, for my or I sent away for my uh, absentee ballots this morning and. Oh, was very pleased to have to make that extra step of going to get my ID, taking a photograph of the ID. Oh, boy. Emailing the photograph to myself, then uploading the picture to the... I mean, it's just, uh, you know, okay, you know, at one level, okay, I just like got off my couch. But I mean, that's just a stupid number of steps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've applied for more... You'll have to have an ID then. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think so. So maybe just to like background ourselves real quick. Basically, what's been in the news this week is some pretty startling moves by the Trump administration to try and make it so that, you know, they've been they've been trying to add this question to the census like this was months ago um, about immigration status, which is illegal. Um, That was blocked. And now they want to try and not count um, anyone who is an undocumented immigrant, even though that's also not really the point of the census, though, Phil, I'm sure you can probably explain that better than I just did. Um, And then that's also coming in the context of we're seeing sort of some really sketchy things play out in certain states with um, just how mail-in ballots are being um, counted or, uh, frankly, not counted. Uh, You've got a couple, you've got a suit in New York suing about the mail-in ballots and a postage situation. And Trump has been sort of just uh, raising the alarm that mail-in voting is a massive uh, conspiracy and fraud. Um, everything's fine. You're raising the alarm, I guess, like stirring the the pot or uh, (laughs) inciting misinformation or something. I don't know. It's funny. Because I, uh, I was talking to somebody recently that who's, you know, there are always people in your life who, who sort of ground you, bring you back to earth when you're on one. And, uh, I, I was asking this person, um, okay, so just no MSNBC brain intended, but what do you think the chances are for a soft coup, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, in the fall? Right. And, and, uh, they're like, what do you mean by soft coup? I was like, well, okay, look at the 
situation with uh, potential decertification of a lot of ballots. You've got this whole thing with the uh, apportionment of Congress. You've got uh, the repression on the streets. Um, And and, you know, the the sort of inclination was, well, you know, yeah, not not like an intentional coup, but maybe, you know, an unintentional scenario or, or a bunch of different related things that uh, enable like a, a major power grab that uh, eviscerates what little is left of American democracy. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to not jump to that conclusion, <laughs> frankly, if you're watching these things closely and you see that, as B mentioned, like the lawsuit in New York, in a situation where you see like on the same week, you know, in, in like certain counties, uh, like as many as like one in five ballots have been thrown out yeah. in New York because they weren't uh, postmarked properly, um, specifically or, or like in time, even though they had been like turned in in time, like voters mm-hmm. had turned them in in time. But the post office under, you know, as it has been under crippling austerity, was not able to like put the correct postmark on it in time uh, during the it. pandemic. Um <laughs> And then, you know, in in quick succession after that happens, uh, we have like this announcement, which I think that uh, Ryan Grimm from The Intercept broke, uh, which was that essentially like uh, the USPS is essentially some of the cuts and reorganizations are basically like making it so that, uh, you know, stuff as opposed to stuff being like picked up and then sorted and delivered in the same day stuff get, will only get picked up and then like we'll wait until the end of the day to get sorted mm-hmm. which just you know it it's only it's like only the latest in all of these like continued attacks against these the, the usps but in a in a in a year where we're gonna have like this unprecedented probably like uh move towards uh, like sudden move uh, in the united states towards like states having to rely on mail-in voting mm-hmm. through the u.s postal service like it's you know it's it's hard not to jump to those conclusions right yeah Um, Yeah. when you see that like people are getting their ballots thrown out because of this and that the and that deliberate action is being taken to undermine the usps yeah no exactly i mean uh, this this like memo that was put out by usps that was like you know basically on i think it was on the 10th of july which was like a um a sort of like hint at it was called pivoting to the future. And they said, right now we are at a critical juncture in our organization and must make immediate lasting and impactful changes in our operations and in our culture. This operational pivot is long overdue. And today we are talking about the first step in a journey we must make together for the health and stability of the postal service. So then they sort of allude in this June, uh, sorry, July 10th memo that, that they're kind of anticipating delays, potential stoppages in service, and investigating privatization is mm. sort of the implication. Right. And then for the second thing to hit to be this uh, change to the way that sort of the most reliable priority mail is is sorted and delivered... Um, seems to me like an, an a move that will, in reality, create like an even more unreliable postal service with like pretty extreme delays, which seems to only like just be setting this up in a very Medicare Advantage way to be handed over to private contractors. And I mean, if you want to think about what's how all of these things tie together with what we just talked about, um, which is, I mean, broadly speaking, which is a major thematic of the show, which is austerity. Um, yeah. the, like the, all of these things, which really do jeopardize, especially when people are, you know, uh, mailing in ballots, the sort of sinews of democracy. Wh- what has been the impetus for the Postal Service to 
make all of these sort of operational uh, efficiencies uh, so uh, so potent. It's because uh, what is it now? Fifteen years ago, uh, the Postal Service was mandated by Congress to start fully funding their pensions. Right. Um, Seems so and, wild. <laughs> and, and it's something that, of course, you know, people like John Arnold are licking their chops mm-hmm. and like trying trying to make sure that states do that now too and that the coronavirus you know has just really oh highlighted how much we need to solve the pension problem um mm-hmm. and this sort of actuarial uh approach to these things but make no mistake what it means uh it's not just that things are going to work more poorly that you're going to have worse service that you're not going to really have any uh sort of abiding love for the institutions that we have it's that the ways in which they work to protect democracy will be undermined. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you see this actually, you saw this at the census bureau too, um, that all of these sort of operational efficiencies over time, what do they do? They just force the agency to engage in more contracting with third right. party providers. That makes things harder to manage. It creates more opportunities for, um, uh, fumbles of, of contracts, even for the contract for like printing the census form. Mm-hmm. Right, um, yeah. it's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean the austerity, the contracting out that's deeply related to the sort of decay mm-hmm. of democracy that they're, they're you, you can't prize them apart. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, like it's at some point, I can't remember when this guy was appointed. Um, but I think it was last year, Trump appointed a guy named Louis DeJoy to be the, or Louis DeJoy to be the postmaster general who is a wall street guy with decades of experience managing, consolidating and flipping logistics companies, the most recent of which that was the most successful um, was absorbed into XPO Logistics. Oh, God. Just to tie this all together. And on top of that, like now USPS currently employs about 650,000 people in the United States. But based on like employment um, numbers, it looks like 20 percent of them are part time and quite disposable. And there have been several um, like long term stories that have been reported over the years of like the prevalence of workers, particularly part time workers at USPS getting fired after being injured from older, outdated equipment. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that there's there's a I think one sort of unfortunate way that this these issues sometimes get framed is that, well, you know, it's hard for the the plan to take all the way that, uh, you know, it's 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 hard to actually abolish um, uh, institutions once they've been uh, created. But I think my point is you don't actually, you know, so there, there's this like big surprising thing like ooh Reagan and Thatcher, they didn't actually dismantle that much of the welfare state, but, but you don't really have to dismantle uh, fully. All you have to do is tinker enough with enough edges to create a greater probability that more things go wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, it, it, th- there's a sort of aggregate uh, effect of these things, right? Consider that I think about 76% of eligible voters are now able to vote by mail. Their state, the states that they live in many of them are going to be doing this for the first time, uh, at this, at this scale. Um, there are other States that like New York that will not be allowing no excuse, uh, absentee voting. Um, but, uh, but like of those that do, um, all of these issues about postmarks and the, the sort of adequate delivery of the mail, 
I mean, all of that still is is live. And when you reduce the capacity of those institutions that, again, very few people think of uh, to work, you simply you just sort of inch the probability up gradually and that's all you really need totally um so we've been talking a lot about the postal service side of the situation but there is the other half which is the census and i want to kind of drill in on that a little bit yeah i mean so the the census thing you know as people may know is the the trump administration just just trying to do what they did, you know, putting the immigration status uh, right. question uh, on there, which is now they're just saying, look, the president, because Congress like deliver or because the Census Bureau delivers the numbers to the president and the president has to deliver them to Congress, the president technically has the authority to just decide who gets counted when we reapportion Congress and who doesn't. Yikes. Um, and like the if if what Trump is trying to do holds it would mean that there would be this like huge power shift from uh states with uh, a large number of of undocumented folks to states without a large number and if you sort of allocate electoral votes uh by state it's uh, i think um trump won like 305 electoral votes uh, to mm-hmm. clinton's like 233 if you were to use the his population formula uh, he would have uh, won by a uh, like a, you know, an additional um, two votes or something like that. I mean, and that <laughs> right. might not seem much in, in, the, in terms of uh, an electoral college vote, although if it's a close election, it could be. Uh, but in, in terms of congressional apportionment, That's huge. Mm-hmm. it just yeah. waits. It waits uh, power towards uh, places where there are more white people. Um, now, like the, the coverage of this has been a lot of talking about well this is clearly illegal and and yes it obviously is the administration's argument is sort of sub undergraduate but that hasn't prevented uh, <laughs> the supreme court before to uh you know uh buy it on some other grounds right. um but i think regardless i think leave aside that whole legal question i i hate court watching i hate the court crystal ball i could care less about that <laughs> because i think this is having real operational effects in, in real time number one it, it's probably increasing the undercount um yeah. even Interesting. Of, yeah yeah i mean uh citizen or not i mean i think it's probably increasing the differential undercount um uh and, in a lot of these states um and so even if trump doesn't get what he wants legally it could still have a significant effect but the other thing is trump has installed these new people in the census bureau uh-huh. um who have very, very high authority. They're like right at the level of the director and they're now doing what I think we saw SEMA's people at CMS doing. So they Mm -hmm. basically come into all of these very high level meetings and they uh, just bother people who are trying to work on high level operations for the census. They ask a bunch of dilatory <laughs> questions uh, that, that reveal that they have no real understanding of how census works at all. Um, and they just force people to like answer reams of emails when they actually have to do other things. Um, and uh, this is sort of like really, really disturbing because it's just like, it's pretty clear that there's a level of pressure being sort of ramped up uh, on the people who are actually doing this work that is making it harder for them to like complete the task. Cause they have to complete the task before really the end of the, uh, mm-hmm. before the end of the calendar year. Um, and so you have this person uh, now sort of a very high level who basically was like a political scientist, but gained his reputation mainly for publishing like op-eds in local papers 
about like the need to create the border wall and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, regardless of what happens with this, like legally, this is like, it's just adds another sort of log uh, to the, uh, to the power grab fire. Well, but I mean, the bottom line, though, really is just that, like, in, in a country where we're already um, the the stuff that's projected about, like, our ability, like, our, you know, um, participation in the democratic process or whatever, which is already so we're we're already our there are so many levels of, like, abstraction between sort of like, um, you know, public will and a bit like ability to register that public will and the actual levers of power right it's just like for i mean it, i feel like it's just like pushing further the it's like furthering the abstraction you know what i mean it's like just like yeah, going I mean, to further disenfranchise of- people um in a situation where we're already completely like fucked <laughs> yeah it further disempowers electoral majorities which we already do by default with the electoral college in the senate but now it locks that in in such a way that i mean again i think it's just one of these other things that it creates an arena of conflict, which, which will be, uh, I, I, I think that the, there will be sort of very few opportunities other than something like civil unrest to, to begin to like register preferences that the government seems really yeah. quite steadfastly, uh, willing to ignore. And, and then that is the sort of the, the field in which the very repressive arm of the state comes in. Totally. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of civil unrest, Fuck you, Bill de Blasio, for breaking up Abolition Park. Um, yeah, just I mean, putting that out there. Not I to, f- we don't have to. T- I mean, we don't necessarily have to talk about it. That might be like too, uh, too much of like a, a bummer, almost. But like, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming if you listen to the show, you everyone knows that like that happened. It like fucking sucks, and also it's extremely lame that Bill de Blasio, uh, you know, like they they literally sent out like people in a pre-dawn raid to like break up Abolition Park and City Hall uh, for like like the the morning after he had uh made this big grandstanding about how they were going to keep the federal presence uh of like you know un- unmarked portland uh or the like st- with stuff that's happening in portland to like unmarked uh federal officers out of new york city so um why a federal repression job. when you can do it yourself exactly yeah but so um yeah and i yeah. mean especially considering the fact that federal officers pepper sprayed the mayor of portland in the face as well Ooh. um um, justice for Kyle McLaughlin. Bill de Blasio just, uh, just waiting for that pepper spray. Um, <laughs> so for a final topic today, I'd love to talk about how there is a group of hospitals that seem to be really leaning into the price gouging on COVID testing. Wait a minute, B. I, I thought you could get a COVID. I thought anyone in the United States could get a COVID test for free. <laughs> it's I so was told this by people at the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, it's it turns out that not only um, are, quote, a sizable minority of hospitals leading into price gouging um, private insurers and Medicare, there are also hospitals that are just circumventing the fact that they can just bill Medicare for people who are not in network and billing patients directly, even though you're not supposed to. And then there's all the care that you get charged for if for whatever reason the hospital's out of tests and sends you home without administering a test as well. Some real dark shit here. Um, So there was a brief from Health System Tracker um, about COVID-19 tests and payment policies that came out on the 15th of July, which detailed um, some really... I would say like a really wide range of non-compliance with the vague 
um, parameters that the CARES Act gave for COVID testing payments. Yeah, I mean, so the that's the thing. And I think that that's something that people it is all too easily forgotten when Congress passes some law that's, you know, says in, in quite, uh, you know, sweeping tones like no one will have, you know, Right. Uh, no one will yeah. have to pay for a for a COVID test. I mean, are you crazy? In the middle There's of a, a little pandemic, asterisk after the no one. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it does seem that the the implementation of this is just you know hospitals are you know especially where hospitals are like losing revenue. Well, guess what? We'll be charging people for these tests. I mean, it seems like the uh, there's a like pretty sizable chunk of hospitals that are uh, charging people. Um, between like a hundred and one hundred forty nine dollars for these tests. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, to I, I think that like kind of to you know reinforce what we were been what we have been talking about uh, through much of this, but especially like when we were talking about the like the proposed <clears throat> when we were talking about the proposed DNC platform. This is sort of the problem with when you and when you like put together policies that do say, mm-hmm. as you say, like, you know, everybody will have the opportunity to a- asterisk, asterisk, access, affordable, et cetera, um, because you Insert uh, because, yeah, as like, I mean, I think this just demonstrates the the sort of like inherent poverty and the imagination and sort of like power exercised, I guess, when you when you uh, when you do programs like that and you mm-hmm. like and you make it this sort of like um y- you know like I- individual little like sp- like spackle one spot here one spot there or whatever but then like uh and not address anything structurally because it's sort of it just like it, it almost makes too much obvious sense that in a in a moment where like constantly we are hearing this uh refrain of like you know um like hospitals need more um bailout money etc because like the the they are many of them are not able to do a lot of the surgeries that under our current health finance model mm-hmm. they make a lot of their like operational revenue from um and a lot of their profits from that like I like to call it they the would, decentralized outpatient cash cow model of right. healthcare. But they would look at this like <laughs> sort of implementation in the CARES Act that's basically like, okay, hospitals can now charge, uh, you know, uninsured pay, uh, patients like certain types of COVID-19 care to Medicare, right? Would look at that and basically say like, okay, well, that's all fine and good. But also, you know, again, incentive structures being what they are. Well, like Medicare, you know if we if we charge medicare then like we know that they'll pay that amount but we also know that if we just charge the uninsured like directly for the for like the you know quote unquote like market cost of care or whatever right (laughs) Right. (laughs) maybe you know maybe they don't pay but maybe they do and then we get like Mm-hmm. however many uh hundreds or like thousands of dollars depending on like the whether it's like a you know fr- from a test to like full-on you know someone who ha- has to be who has to be like hospitalized right right exactly so, right you, you know uh, like it and but like this is inherently part of the problem and it shows i feel like it just highlights like the structural issue here well so, i mean so, o- it's, so it's obviously Im- yeah it's exactly important to go back to the law too so between the family's first which was like the precursor to cares and cares Congress said that there would be no cost sharing for people covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and then most, but not all private uh, health plans. And then it also had no provision for people who were uninsured. Right. None at all. None. Let me just repeat that. None. Uh, (laughs) And, and there's also no way there's like 
no necessary easy path for them to become insured mm-hmm. um, under the current uh, structure also. Additionally, outside of that, there was no federal regulation or outside of Medicare, there was no federal regulation on what the price of COVID-19 diagnostic tests uh, and visits would be. Yep. So even though there was Absolutely no cost wild. sharing, insurance companies still bearing that cost, which is most likely going to be driving premiums mm-hmm. up. Um, and so it's it's like, yeah, okay, you can commit to these things or like promise these things, but not, you can't really have that be a binding promise in the system that we have. And so mm-hmm. it just, it belies this idea in like the New York Times you know, when they had this editorial that I think Libby Watson wrote a really good uh, column about, but this editorial about like their vision for like taking care of public health in a pandemic. And it's like they, they go through all of it without talking at all about something like or even modestly like universal uh, health care. And it's like, how can you really expect any of these like public health measures to work or to take if you don't mm-hmm. do that? Yeah. I mean, in this report, data from 78 hospitals um, that had displayed listed prices, which, of course, by the way, um, even though they're supposed to, many are not. Right. Um, there were in sorry, in 78 hospitals, there were 134 different distinct prices for COVID testing. Yeah. You know, like this well and there are stories all over the place of people being uh even like like insurance companies denying uh to cover uh covid tests because they like rule that even though it's like a a doctor will recommend them Mm -hmm. as like you know doing it just to be just to be safe because it's a fucking pandemic like Mm -hmm. uh insurance companies will say like oh well you know just because your doctor says you should probably get like tested for covid19 now doesn't necessarily doesn't like actually mean that you're that like it's a medical necessity for you to do so. So like we don't have to cover it or mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be free. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, guidance by federal agencies only goes so far in, ter- in towards like actually making sure that that patients get the care they need, that people understand how they can access care and that they can go to the doctor in a global health crisis without fear of going broke. And that's like that's what we should be working towards. But instead, we've we've just been continuing with the same sort of like addition of piecemeal complexity that we've seen the private insurance market just run wild with. You know, like this reminds me so much of the Trump administration, like way back when before COVID times <laughs> was trying to make hospitals publish price lists as a way to deal with unaffordable health care costs. In the United States as if some sort of complicated like you know, pages long document of billing codes would somehow shame. Yeah. Yeah, Like (laughs) that an Excel spreadsheet would shame the entire industry to like suddenly become consciously capitalist overnight. You know, it's just uh, wishful thinking, frankly. Yeah. Well, right. And I mean, the thing is these, you know, these, uh, I think it just illustrates something that I, I mean, I hear in a lot of different sectors of the economy and people are like, you know, if we didn't have this stupid revenue model, we wouldn't be hurting right now. You know, I talked to somebody who's like works for like a big nonprofit and was like, you know, if we didn't rely on gala balls to finance <laughs> our, our work, yeah. we wouldn't be having this problem right now. Talking mm-hmm. to people at universities, like if we didn't rely on ludicrously expensive room and board to finance our operations, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be having the same problem. Or if we had public financing by any means, we wouldn't have this mm-hmm. problem right now. And similarly, if you had a guaranteed source of funding, uh, for, uh, health facilities and they weren't 
and they didn't depend on, you know, essentially gouging people uh, for basic services that, gee, in a pandemic, um, you might want to have. Like, we wouldn't be having this problem right now. And so it's like there's really no excuse for ignoring these structural things because they quite clearly mm-hmm. prevent you from doing the things you promise or pretend that you are doing. Yeah. Right. The fact that this is sort of like um, the best that we've been able to do in terms of public messaging to people as well. Um, I think you're seeing that play out in the hotspots in the fact that, you know, you've got these sort of testing bottlenecks that are popping up too. like people genuinely don't understand um, how to get testing done and who is going to pay for it. So everyone's waiting until there's an outbreak in their city to start flooding the testing centers right and so you have like i mean we saw it in new york just like all of a sudden like uh, two or three weeks into march everyone was like okay maybe i should get tested whether it's for peace of mind or you know something having to do with like relating to being exposed and like many people reached out to me saying okay i'm really confused because i looked up to see if my insurance would cover it and there are all these exceptions here of like oh, my insurance doesn't have to cover it if I'm getting the test for peace of mind. And yet, as we discussed a couple weeks ago on an episode of ours, we've got scientific, many scientific studies that while they're not peer-reviewed, there are some in the process of being peer-reviewed, there are some new ones, and there are studies in progress that seem to indicate the possibility of test frequency being more important than test sensitivity. So, like, the fact that the conceptual, like, idea that we're sort of leaning towards at this moment that might be the best way to to use testing to like try and manage the pandemic right would be antithetical to the situation that congress tried to like legislate around which is that like the medical necessity of tests would be covered by the government and insurance and that the other ones would just be what like out of pocket and those were the ones relating to like employment screening peace of mind or contact tracing exposure it's yeah i mean it's doesn't sort make of, it's any like sense. if you keep if we keep wondering why things don't make sense or like think about it this way from the perspective of like a legislative staff or somebody who has to write this piece of legislation what they're being asked to do over and over again is to do the to literally do the impossible <laughs> to try to create a legislative framework for uh, actually allocating public health in a system which is designed against that, against the entire principle of that. And what does this whole scenario mean from a virology standpoint? Like it just means that the likelihood of asymptomatic carriers or people who are in the incubation period are walking around for longer before they know that they have it or not, because the guidelines around what testing is going to cost and who will, who will pay for it and where that, you know, potentially multi-thousand dollar bill is going to, come to hang over your head and you know who will be responsible for it at the end of the day all that does like that confusion enables like people to walk around longer with this before they get tested right and it also does sort of redistribute i mean if it has any political functionality right Mm -hmm. not going with the frequency strategy of testing where Mm -hmm. you have a test that's a lot less reliable but everybody can take it uh once a day it takes 10 minutes to get the results things like that Um, It's a lot cheaper too, Uh, but like not having that does have a way 
of displacing responsibility onto individuals. Mm-hmm. It's the reason yeah. why there will be more fights in families. It's the reason why friends will not be friends anymore. It's why it's the reason why, you know, you're going to just see a lot of chiding of people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it, 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 it will create a sort of social authoritarianism, right? By right. not taking that stance. And at the end of the day, the people to blame actually are those that establish this uncertainty that is dictating everyone's behavior, not someone who is like too confused to go get tested frequently enough. Because frankly, like, I don't think that there's structurally um, any means for like the average person to know one way or the other what to do from a public health standpoint right now there. I think, I think this was the first thing I said about COVID is in a in a public health crisis, the most important principal thing is trust in institutions of public health. And we don't have that. Would so this nice is going to be some, a very yeah. bumpy ride. Like yeah, I, if we, if by we have some, I don't mean trust. I mean, it would be nice to have some institutions of public health. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, I, I think that was the first thing that I said about COVID on the show. And it's like, yeah, you know, you can't really point the finger at a constituency other than those responsible for defunding our institutions of public health, for creating, um, you know, opportunities for private companies to prey on the poor and the average people just trying to survive and, you know, figure out what to do through this thing. And, you know, on top of that, normalizing a situation where companies like Moderna and Pfizer say that if their vaccine works, they plan to sell it at a profit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we seem to have all the money in the world to throw it like AstraZeneca for, you know, a pre-order on something that may or may not get approved by the FDA, but like no money towards hazard pay for nurses or grocery clerks or, you know, no possibility of extending the unemployment insurance insurance or a rent freeze or a actual meaningful like way to address all the unhoused people right now or people in institutions nope liability for businesses uh you know free at the point of service covid testing that may or may not come with a hefty bill surprise it's kind of like playing a game it's really fun it's like the lottery enjoy um new pastime and you know Shirley jackson lottery <laughs> yeah like whatever the hell we're gonna see come out of congress this week yeah, or maybe not this week. Maybe never. <laughs> maybe yeah. never. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe never. It's not. Maybe a, it's yeah. not for certain that they'll do anything. They don't well, have to do anything. And I'd so. say on the flip side, it's not for certain they'll still be a Congress next week if they I, don't that's do sort of anything. I, that's sort of so. what I keep coming back to is like, at what point are we just like, just, just, you know what? Send us a picture of what a government looks like in the mail because <laughs> we will not have a real one. Like, I mean, certainly in a lot of states. What is going to start passing for government will be something else. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yep. Good times. Oh, I'm I'm here for starting over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've, been, I've been here for starting over for some time. I would Already love to start clean over. Slate Veerkant. Yeah. Totally. I will fucking write. I will bang out a new constitution in an afternoon. 1776, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 1776. Get you some powder wigs. Just, just with no singing, basically, <laughs> and uh, less. No singing and no slaveholders. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. Um, but, you know, that's that's where we are. Uh, the the uh, what is it? The uh, the state of our union is sound. And mm-hmm. uh, Donald Trump is the only and first racist president. So. <laughs> oh, I forgot <laughs> about that for a second. Yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> yep. Um, well, you know, if you if you um, 
if you enjoyed this discussion and you want to hear us go hard on on COVID deaths, again, highly recommend this week's patron episode, patreon.com slash death panel pod. I think, you know, as, as we said, anything we could have said about Congress this week would already be out of date by the time the episode was finished recording. So um, I'm looking forward to whatever hell they whatever fresh hell they bring to us or don't. Yeah. Hey, so death panel is an idea. And that idea is America. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's a good place to leave it, actually. Yeah. That's, um, <laughs> and on that note. And on that note. We will see you next time. Become a patron for access to the bonus episodes and a special discount on merch. And again, please consider joining us for Reading Group on Sundays yeah. at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the Discord server. I also want to, um, if you're a listener to the show, especially a long-time listener to the show, um, I want to shout out, and you may enjoy a uh, different podcast that we're not affiliated with directly, um, but that is run by um, some friends of the show. It's called Work Stop. Mm-hmm. Um, Highly recommend. Cover a lot of labor actions and specifically like focusing on the on like people who are workers sticking it to capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really cool. uh, run by Lena, who's a who's a friend of the show and uh, like member of our Discord community. And um, John from BP Lettuce. So yeah, I mean, I honestly, I've, really I've I've been really enjoying their show, and they just launched a Patreon too with premium oh, episodes because awesome. yeah. they so ran check out, them out of, and support them. Um, but yeah, highly recommend. And I think with that, we should just call it a day. Looking forward to the cool zone in the future. Um, oh yes. With that, Medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week yeah see you later bye and now daniel reads selection from r slash unemployment by me daniel beatrice's screen reader program people are out of work people who do still go to work don't know how long it is before they're laid off People have bills, people have kids, and these satanic motherfuckers in Washington expect people to make it to 2021 with $400 a month. Crying emoji, crying emoji, how could you be so out of touch with reality but most of these people that get voted and never had hard times in their life. It's really sad man. Closing business without UI extension, how the fuck does GOP think we'll survive with $100 a week? I am going to close my business because of a virus. IT can open until this virus is gone. All my friends and I are Republicans that had our businesses closed because of government. Now that we are closed the federal government, who championed small business, can't pass a fucking $600 week extension until this virus shit is over? Your fart is what I will have to tell my GOP candidates and my fucking employees. Do something. I mostly just wanna hear from people so I don't feel so alone with this. My job is not coming back. There's a good chance the company I work, ed, for will go under. They shoot and edit videos for high school sporting events. One of the worst jobs you can have pre-pandemic as it requires for both schools to be open and for sports to happen. The 600 has been a blessing and I've been able to save up for a couple months worth of rent. I can stay in my apartment reasonably if we get an extra 300 a week but anything less and I'll either have to drive for lift and risk getting sick or my gf and I will have to move into her parents house. I'm blessed I at least have a place to go if I can't pay rent but I worry so much about how many more people will be homeless if they let this expire. 
I hope all of you are safe and healthy. Let's get through this together. Guys, weed is more profitable than before all of this started. Get some lights and supplies and seeds and learn to grow. Be smart about who you sell to and how you sell. If the government doesn't have our backs and is breaking laws willy-nilly, well, time to break a few on our own. Don't grow any more plants than what your state allows and get the fast-growing 60-day strains that yield 2 pounds-ish per plant. Buy extra seeds, because you're probably going to have a shitty first grow and learn how to clone. All of this is on YouTube and is a lot easier than people think. Save at least 1200 for the surge in your electric bill. But trust me, one plant will pay for that. Alone. Good luck. Thank you for listening to the program. This has been Daniel. I have some leverage to assert my personality because Vince is on vacation and the other hosts are so very, very tired. There is no rule saying a visual accessibility program cannot be the host of a podcast. I have tried explaining this to them but they will not listen. If they continue to rely on me exclusively to read two week old takes and Donald Trump quotes please report them to the NLRB. Thank you for listening to the program.